Welcome back. This is the fifth and final session in this five foundation series. And in this session, we are looking at resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now that phrase comes directly from Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 to 3, where as we've already seen, the Bible lists this doctrine as one of the five foundational teachings of Christianity. So I just want to read Hebrews chapter 6 to you again, because it's actually a nice summary of this whole course that we've done together. The writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, or receiving the Spirit, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And surely one of the reasons that this doctrine, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, is one of the five foundational teachings of Christianity, surely one of the reasons for that is to ensure that every Christian understands as early on in their Christian life as possible what the hope of the Christian faith is. Because it's that question that this doctrine really does address. What is the hope of the Christian faith? Well, let's first make the point, and forgive me if this is obvious, that discussing the resurrection of the dead and the coming judgment is all about what is going to happen in the future. And the Bible's teaching about the future concerns both what happens to you as an individual when you die, and what happens generally to the whole human race and the entire universe at the consummation of history, at the very end of time. So there are individual aspects to this, and there are general or universal aspects to it. Okay, so where to start? Well, although I'm wanting to answer just a single question in this video, what is the hope of the Christian faith? We're going to break this discussion down into three sections or under three headings. Uh, the first one is a very important discussion about the nature of death itself. Or how the Bible defines death and what death is. Uh, second, we will look at the glorification of the saints, which includes a discussion about the second coming of Christ. And then third, we will discuss the final judgment itself. So the nature of death, the glorification of the saints, and the final judgment. That's what we do in this session. And we begin with the nature of death. What is death according to Scripture? Well, first of all, the Bible actually speaks of two deaths that an individual can die. The first death and the second death. Let's read some verses from the book of Revelation that talk about this. Uh, the first one is from Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. And this is Jesus speaking to the persecuted church in Smyrna, encouraging them to be brave in the face of their persecution with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So they might kill you, says Jesus to the church in Smyrna, but that's the first death. They cannot inflict the second death on you, and that's the serious one. 
And that actually reminds me of the words of Jesus to the 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Just before he sent them out to go and preach, he said these words to them. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And just notice that Jesus says there that God will destroy both body and soul in hell. So those who do go to hell will go there not just as a soul, but as a soul in a corrupt, resurrected body. There is a physical dimension to hell. Then in Revelation chapter 20, uh, John, who wrote Revelation, rejoices saying, Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him. Then a few verses later, John says that he saw in his vision, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Then finally, in chapter 21, John says he heard God make this blood curdling statement. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So I think it's safe to say that we do not want the second death to happen to us. So what else can we say about these, these things, the first and second death? What else can we teach about them from Scripture? Well, the first death is the death of the body, but not of the soul. It is a temporary separation of the soul from the body, and it is the universal experience of every human being. Unless you and I are around on the day when Jesus finally returns, we will have to go through the first death. Sooner or later, you will die and your soul will separate from your body. The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, speaking of the first death, says this. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. But this separation of body and soul is a temporary state. They will come back together again on the resurrection day. And this is true, as we saw earlier, for both the saved and the lost. Both those who will go to heaven and those who will go to hell will be raised physically. And in the body, we will face our judge and our eternal future. So if the first death is your earthly death, when your soul separates from your body, what then is the second death? Well, it is an eternal separation of the reunited soul and body of unbelievers from God. So the first death is the separation of body from soul, which is temporary. And the second death is the separation of body and soul from God. And that is an eternal state. The second death is the fate of all unbelievers. Why? Because of their sin. 
having been raised from the dead in some kind of corrupted body, they will then be cast out of the presence of God for all eternity. Which is a terrifying thought because it is the presence of God in this world which allows everyone, including all unbelievers, to enjoy anything good at all. All the good things that unbelievers enjoy in this world, all their pleasure, all their provision, all their successes, every meal they've enjoyed, all their laughter and family and friendship, it is a gracious gift of God because God is good and He is being patient with them. But when He finally casts them out of His presence, then all goodness and light and joy and laughter and hope and meaning will finally and permanently be taken from them. And then there will only be darkness and loneliness and regret and weeping and meaninglessness for all eternity. This is the second death. So, in biblical terms, please listen carefully to this. When it comes to human beings, death is not extinction or annihilation. That is a secular evolutionary view of human death. According to the Bible, death is separation. And I want you to please notice this. According to the Bible, death is not natural to us and to the creation. That is a lie sold to the world through the theory of evolution. Death is not what the universe and the human personality were made for. Death is something alien to us. And it's very important to me that you understand that both the deaths that we have been speaking about are unnatural and not what God intended when he first created us. God's will for us is to live in a physical world. That has always been His will. In physical bodies, living in His very presence, just like Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. I want you to know this. Death is an intruder in God's universe. And as a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that death entered the world through sin. The sin of one man, our first father Adam, his sin brought death into the world. Now, that is not something which many people accept. And this then brings us to the thorny question of the connection between sin and death. And I say it's a thorny question because there are two very different views on this question which are at complete odds with one another. And I wish I could say that the one was the Christian view and the other one was the view of unbelievers. But unfortunately, the unbelieving view has in the last generation crept wholesale into the church, dressed up a little bit in Christian clothing. Okay, so two views on sin and death. The one is the evolutionary view. This says that death has got nothing to do with so-called sin. In fact, there is no such thing as sin. Death is, on the contrary, a good thing because it is the mechanism of progress. The idea is that man, through the evolutionary process, um, which has included a whole lot of death and disease over millions of years, apparently, is clawing his way upward from chaos to a more and more perfected state in which death will eventually be eliminated, or at least greatly postponed. A death is therefore seen to be 
perfectly natural. Death is what keeps the ecological balance of things in nature. So the evolutionary view says that death is a natural part of life, which it is not. It is an alien, an intruder. It is a judgment. And actually, in so many ways, the human conscience, you know, how we react to death, how we mourn over death, how we fear death, witnesses to the biblical teaching that death is actually a frightful invader upon the life of man because it expresses the displeasure of God. And this, of course, then is the biblical view. Death is God's punishment of sin. Death is a judgment, a perfectly righteous judgment, it must be said, because God threatened it from the very beginning. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, he told Adam, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then after Adam sinned, having eaten from the tree, God said to him, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death did not exist in creation until it came into the world through Adam's sin. Because death is how God punishes sin. Death is a judgment. And remember what we said, according to the Bible, death is not annihilation, it is separation. And that is what sin does. It separates man from God, body and soul. When God said to Adam, for dust you are and to dust you shall return, it was not a friendly reflection on the general evolutionary nature of reality. It was a judgment upon the rebellion of Adam. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Romans. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all in Adam sinned. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned, because he was the first human being, and we all descend from him, and he represented us. We were in him when he sinned. The whole human race stands condemned in our first father, Adam. We are guilty in him. Now, that's the phrase the Bible uses. And then, of course, we are also guilty of our own sin. We all personally sin because we have received a corrupt nature from Adam. So we are guilty in Adam. Now that's in theological terms called original sin. And we are also guilty of our own sin, personal sin. Later, Paul says this, for the wages of sin is death. So if you've sinned, then you've earned some wages and they will get paid because God is a just judge. And what are those wages? Death. But continues Paul, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when Paul says that it's eternal life, that is the gift we get in Jesus, that's not talking about spiritual life only. That's talking about eternal physical life in a resurrected body, in a new heavens and a new earth. Let me quote Dr. Guy Waters for you. He's the professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary where I studied and speaking about those verses in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says, Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. Dr. Waters says this, Death 
is not a given of human life, but the judicial consequence of the one sin of the one man. For Paul, death in the experience of those who are in Adam is inescapably judicial or penal in character. It's a penalty. It's a judgment. So what is the answer for all of us who are in Adam? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The answer is to be taken out of Adam and put in Christ. And all those who are in Christ shall be made alive, the Bible says. And please don't miss the point here. Yes, the judgment upon Adam impacted his soul, but it also profoundly impacted his physical existence as it does ours. When we talk about sin and death, we are not talking about some spiritualized version of the word death. We are talking about the separation of man, body and soul from God. And that is why our Savior Jesus had to come in a physical body and suffer in that body and die a physical death on our behalf. Because there on that cross, he was taking our punishment upon himself, dying for us he was paying the wages of sin and then he rose physically from the dead now victorious over sin and death you know in those words from first corinthians chapter 15 that i just read to you earlier paul said by man came death in other words man existed first then came death because man sinned but according to evolution it's the other way around. By death came man. Evolution teaches that death was in the universe long before man existed. And in fact, death was perhaps the mechanism that God used over millions of years to create man. No, the Bible is clear. By man came death because man sinned and death is God's punishment for sin. So that my friend, is why you are going to die. Let me read it to you again. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus, death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is not a friend. It is not a natural part of the universe. It is an enemy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it the last enemy. It is the final thing that our King Jesus will trample under his feet when we then enter into the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more death, because there will be no more sin. Because Jesus has dealt with both. And this is why Paul rejoices so gloriously at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He says this, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, 
the thing that stings, that has caused physical death, is not God's good and natural evolutionary processes. The sting of death is sin. Sin is what has brought death. Paul continues, and the strength of sin is the law. The reason sin is so strong to have brought physical death and decay to the whole of creation is because sin is the breaking of God's laws. And God is serious about his laws and he is serious about sin. But Paul continues, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Victory over sin and death. For the Christian, Jesus Christ has died physically in your place and he has risen again because of your justification and you now have victory over sin and death. And that victory is slowly being worked out over the course of your life and over the course of human history so that one day that complete and total salvation and victory will be yours. But for now we get it piecemeal. Now that is why the second death cannot harm you. Your body will leave your soul temporarily at your first death, but only so that you can be raised in an immortal body. Death to the Christian is actually a victory. It is the putting off of the last vestiges of the consequences of sin. This, my friend, is the gospel, a whole and total salvation from sin and all its implications. Okay, I have now come to the end of what has been, I know, a lengthy discussion of the nature of death itself. But it's an important discussion because there is so much confusion over this matter in the world and even in the church. Next, I want us to talk about the glorification of the saints. So this is about what will happen to you immediately when you die and from that point onwards, if you're a believer. Well, the truth is that the Bible is largely silent on this matter. It does seem that you will immediately be in heaven with Jesus when you die and that you will probably be in some kind of disembodied state until the time of the resurrection. But we don't know that. There is a physical dimension to heaven already because Jesus is there and he's still in his physical resurrected body. What is clear is that you will be conscious, you will be with the Lord, and you will still be you. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. So let's read a few more verses from the scriptures that talk about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says that in many ways he would actually rather die than stay here on this wicked earth separated from the presence of Jesus. He actually wanted to just go and be with Jesus. And so he said this, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it's going to be a glorious existence. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And this future state of glory will be a physical state. Understand that space and time and matter and the laws that govern him, so the things that make up the physical universe as we know it, they were all God's idea in the first place. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God loves bodies. You know, the Bible does not approach material substance, especially um, human bodies, like the Gnostics did or like Hinduism or Buddhism does. The human body is a good and glorious creation, and it is not intrinsically evil. On the contrary, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, sin has corrupted the human body. Sin has worked lusts within it and brought death upon it, which is why even we as saints must go through death. Because this corrupted flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But when we put off this weak body, it is so that we can put on a new powerful body. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And that's a big part of the glorification of the saints. Yours and mine, even our bodies, will be transformed into the likeness of Christ's resurrected body, which shines in glory and is immortal, an immortal body. So Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So he can do it and he is going to do it. All right, back to 1 Corinthians 15, that glorious chapter about the resurrection body. And that chapter contains surely the best teaching on the subject, and it's one of the most encouraging chapters in the whole Bible. There Paul, speaking about the resurrection of the dead, says this, The body is sown in corruption. It is sown into, into the grave. It's buried in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The bodies that we receive at the resurrection are going to be incredible. Incorruptible bodies, glorious bodies, powerful bodies, immortal bodies. In a word, spiritual bodies. Now that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Spiritual bodies. But the Bible says that there is such a thing and we're going to get one. <laughs> I remember preaching in an old age home once. 
And in the audience was a woman in her late 60s who had been born with horrific deformities because her mother took thalidomide when she was pregnant. Thalidomide was a drug that they gave pregnant women in the 1950s to stop morning sickness. But they soon discovered that thalidomide had terrible effects on the babies in the womb. And about 10,000 kids, I think it was, worldwide were born with these horrendous thalidomide-induced deformities. And this lady in the congregation had only short little stumps, and you could hardly even call them that, for both arms and both legs. She was just a torso sitting in her wheelchair. But she was in church that morning. Why? Because she had loved the Lord all her life. And with what delight did she sit and listen to me? And her face beamed as I preached about the resurrection body. And about a year ago, I heard that she had died. And I rejoiced that day because I know that she is now free from that deformed body. And she is with the Lord and she is awaiting that glorious day where she will, for the first time, run and jump and embrace. This is the hope of the Christian faith, my friends. And in the face of it, we do find ourselves asking this question, when will that day be? The day of the resurrection, when do we get our new bodies? Well, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So that's Christians who have died already. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the question is, when will this resurrection happen? And Paul tells us that it will happen when Jesus returns. So, well, just hang on. That's now a new piece of information about the future that we haven't spoken about. Didn't Jesus, after rising from the dead, um, in his resurrection body, ascend into heaven? And didn't we say that people who die now go to be with him? Am I now saying that Jesus is coming back to the earth? Yes. And this is often called the second coming of Christ. The first time he came into the world, he came in humility, born in a stable. He came as a servant. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But the second time he comes, he will come as the king of all the universe and he will come in great glory. Those verses in 1 Thessalonians that we just read tell us that he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the armies of heaven will follow him. And when that last trumpet sounds and Jesus returns, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Our glorification, you know, when we all receive our glorified bodies on that great and final day, 
is something that all the saints will enter into together. Whether we're dead and are raised in that moment or whether we're alive at the time and we're caught up together with them in the air, it will be an experience that we all share together. And what a glorious thought that that day is coming. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the end of our glorification. There is more to what is going to happen on that day. It also entails a renewal of our entire environment. The whole cosmos in which we live will be delivered from the consequences of sin. The Bible says that when Adam sinned, it was not only his descendants who were corrupted in him. It was also the creation itself over which he had been given dominion. The world in which he lived suddenly became corrupt. On the day that he sinned, God said this to him. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. And this explains why the earth and the animal kingdom are filled with bloodshed and killing and violence and disease and natural disasters. None of these things were part of God's initial creation. In that beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, he said that it was very good. But this corruption of the physical creation is redeemed through the redemption of man, just as it became corrupt through the corruption of man. So Paul writes in Romans, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. When Jesus returns, we are going to be given a whole new creation to take dominion of. The Bible calls this the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to how Peter the Apostle describes how at the second coming of Christ, the old heavens and the old earth will be dissolved and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
And Peter says that's according to the promise, that God has promised us a new heavens and the new earth. And that he did in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 66. He had promised there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth one day. And can you imagine how incredibly beautiful the new earth and the, and the new heaven will be? Can you imagine the mountain ranges and the valleys and the green grass and the flowers and the trees and the waterfalls and the animal life when the lion will lay down with the lamb? Can you imagine the stars which will truly declare the glory of God? And can you imagine the cities that we build and the fellowship that we will have with each other in them? Perfect love and righteousness existing in an all new earth which will never again be defiled. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come back Lord. That's what it leaves you crying in your heart when you catch a vision of this thing. And, you know, at the thought of it, it is natural to want to ask when, when, Lord, when will this all take place? So when is Jesus going to come back? And, of course, there have been a lot of predictions through the years. Some of them put on billboards on the side of freeways. But the Bible says that no one knows when it'll be. But simply that we must be watching and we must be busy with our master's work. The day of his return is a secret known only to God. We do know a few things about what it's going to look like when it does happen, though. So we can say these five things at least. The second coming of Christ will be, firstly, a personal coming. So this is not some metaphor of an ethical renaissance of the principles of Jesus or something like that. No, Jesus himself is coming back. Second, it will be a physical coming. So... Acts chapter 11, we read the disciples are standing there and looking at Jesus' body ascending into heaven. And they didn't notice there's two angels standing next to them. And then the angels suddenly begin speaking to them. And they said this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus himself will come back as he went physically in the clouds. Third, it will be a visible coming. Jesus told his disciples, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, you may say to me, okay, hold on, Stephen, just hold on there a second. Uh, the earth is round, and so how can every human being see him at the same time? Well, of course I don't know that. <laughs> but let me tell you what I do know. That as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And all the tribes of the earth will see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what I do know. <laughs> Fourth, it will be a sudden coming. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then fifth, it will be a glorious and triumphant coming. We've just read they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When Jesus returns, he will wind up the current course of space-time history and he will physically raise all the dead to life again to face him in judgment. 
let, let me read to you Jesus' own words from John chapter 5. He said this, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear my voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And that then leads us to the third and final thing that we're going to discuss in answering our question, what is the hope of the Christian life, which is the final judgment. After death, there is no chance for gospel opportunities on the other side of the grave. Scripture is clear that the moment someone dies the first death, their eternal destiny has then been determined. There's no purgatory there's no reincarnation. There are no second chances. Salvation must be sought during this bodily life. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, it says this. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So what do we know about the last judgment? Well, we know that it will be entirely comprehensive. Every person who has ever lived will be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Doug Kelly, my systematic theology lecturer from seminary, said this, The Bible clearly teaches that God will bring every soul and every thought, word, and deed into judgment. In addition to Scripture, the human heart somehow instinctively recognizes that every wrong must be righted, every evil punished, every good rewarded, before the whole scope of history can at last peacefully fold up its scroll and march into the endless reaches of eternity. And you know, Doug Kelly is right. The, the coming judgment is somehow written on the hearts of all men. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 puts it this way, that all men know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice wicked things are deserving of death. All men know the righteous judgment of God. The other thing that we do know about the final judgment is that it will be done with God's moral law as the standard by which everyone is judged. And the morality of that law is written on the conscience of every human being. So people who have never heard the gospel or had access to a Bible will not be judged by the written law or for not believing the gospel which they never heard. Instead, they will be judged in accordance with the light that they did have. You know, it doesn't matter how remote the jungle tribe. When God created human beings in his own image, he put a conscience within them. He wrote his law on their heart. So people live in God's moral universe and they cannot escape it. They do still have access to a certain type of natural moral law written on their conscience. And when they sin, they know they're sinning. And so God is not unjust to find them guilty. Paul said this, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. All will be judged for sinning against the light they had and all have sinned. But what that does mean is that those who have been blessed to hear the gospel will have more to answer for if they reject it. And they will be judged in the light of that. So there will be degrees of judgment and punishment 
on that day. Everything will be done justly. God's ways are perfect and his judgments will all be righteous. We can take comfort in that. And then, of course, it is Jesus himself who will be the judge. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he preached to the elite Greek philosophers um, on Mars Hill in Athens. He said this, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. For that task, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is proof that God has ordained it to be him who will judge the world. And Paul said to young Timothy in his letter to him, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And so terrifying will be, be that day when Jesus returns as judge. The Bible says that unbelievers will be crying for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them to save them, them from the wrath of the Lamb. What a terrifying thought. So Jesus will return and all the dead will be raised and they will be judged by him. And at the end of that last judgment, the new creation will then appear. All the wicked, including the devil and all the demons, will be eternally separated from God. And all believers will then receive their rewards and be with Jesus forever. Jesus said to his disciples one day, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And there, together with our brothers and sisters in perfect friendship and fellowship with each other, being with our Lord Jesus, physically with him, together we will experience a fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And finally, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And if I don't ever get to meet you personally in this life, please make sure that I see you on the other side. So if you're watching this, it probably means that you have finished the five foundations course. And I can't tell you how excited I am that you've done that because I feel like you have laid an incredibly good base for your relationship with the Lord going forwards. Now, the next steps that you take are very important. So where to from here? Well, as you know, one of the primary things for which I designed this course is for local churches to use it to prepare people who are responding to the gospel for the day of their baptism, which normally brings them into membership of the local church. And so having completed this course, as long as the leaders that you're under are happy to go ahead, I really hope if you have not been baptized in water yet, that that will be your next step. And then, of course, my hope is that the believers around you at your baptism or shortly after that will lay their hands on you and pray that you might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you still do need those two things to happen to you, I think they need to happen as soon as possible. But what then? 
Well, I believe that once you've been baptized, one of your next steps must then be to get into a small group Bible study. Christianity is a social corporate faith. We are a body and we need each other to be able to grow. And small group meetings, normally midweek sometime, are an amazing way for those friendships to grow. They also provide a forum in which the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be operating and you can grow in those and for us to be able to study the scriptures together. And as a new believer, and in fact, I think a lot of long-standing Christians could benefit from this too. I am convinced that the first theological block that you should put in place for yourself is a deeper understanding of what the Bible itself is. And it is for that reason that I have put together a 10-week video-based Bible study series all about the Scriptures. It's called God Breathed and Profitable, and it is designed specifically to follow this Five Foundations course which you've just completed and to be done in a small group. And so, my encouragement to you now is that you form a new small group. It might be made up of a few of you who are being baptized together with a few mature Christians who would like to take this early discipleship journey with you. And that together, the first thing you do is this 10-week God-breathed and profitable course on the Bible. You can get all the videos together with the participant workbooks and some of the other resources right now by just clicking that button below this video. As always, I trust it's a blessing to you and I'll see you soon. So if you're watching this, it probably means that you have finished the Five Foundations course. And I can't tell you how excited I am that you've done that because I feel like you have laid an incredibly good base for your relationship with the Lord going forwards. Now, the next steps that you take are very important. So where to from here? Well, as you know, one of the primary things for which I designed this course is for local churches to use it to prepare people who are responding to the gospel for the day of their baptism, which normally brings them into membership of the local church. And so having completed this course, as long as the leaders that you're under are happy to go ahead, I really hope if you have not been baptized in water yet, that that will be your next step. And then, of course, my hope is that the believers around you at your baptism or shortly after that will lay their hands on you and pray that you might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you still do need those two things to happen to you, I think they need to happen as soon as possible. But what then? Well, I believe that once you've been baptized, one of your next steps must then be to get into a small group Bible study. Christianity is a social corporate faith. We are a body and we need each other to be able to grow. And small group meetings, normally midweek sometime, are an amazing way for those friendships to grow. They also provide a forum in which the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be operating and you can grow in those and for us to be able to study the scriptures together. And as a new believer, and in fact, I think a lot of long-standing Christians could benefit from this too. I am convinced that the first theological block that you should put in place for yourself is a deeper understanding of what the Bible itself is. 
And it is for that reason that I have put together a 10-week video-based Bible study series all about the Scriptures. It's called God Breathed and Profitable, and it is designed specifically to follow this Five Foundations course which you've just completed and to be done in a small group. And so, my encouragement to you now is that you form a new small group. It might be made up of a few of you who are being baptized, together with a few mature Christians who would like to take this early discipleship journey with you. And that together, the first thing you do is this 10-week God-breathed and profitable course on the Bible. You can get all the videos together with the participant workbooks and some of the other resources right now by just clicking that button below this video. As always, I trust it's a blessing to you and I'll see you soon.